Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. We know today I have the privilege of talking to one of my favorite people. He has an office right here at Beeson Divinity School, but he's not a part of our staff technically. He's actually the editorial director of the Gospel Coalition. He's a writer himself, an author of a number of books, maybe still best known for that great book he published back in 2008, I think, called Young, Restless, Reformed, A Journalist's Journey with the New Calvinist. But he's gone on from that to write a number of other things, and we're going to talk about one of his most recent books, which he edited with another minister, Jeff Robinson. I'm talking, of course, about Colin Hansen. (laughs) Colin, welcome to the Beeson Podcast. Thanks for having me, Dr. George. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Now, this is a little bit of an unusual book. It's called 15 Things Seminary Couldn't Teach Me. Now, I work at a seminary. I have done that for my whole life, more or less. I thought we taught people everything they needed to know. (laughs) What makes you think there's some things they need to know we haven't taught them? Now, the real problem was limiting it to 15. <laughs> think, oh, my. <laughs> I think we even came up with 30. You know, I don't actually think, Dr. George, that, that seminaries do leave that impression. I think they do have a sense of their own limitations and their own um, – they're not trying to accomplish everything for a lifetime of ministry. There is much that you can accomplish in three or four years of seminary, but I think it's mostly the students who come in with a mistaken – impression, and it's such a a seminal, such a momentous, formative time that they think coming out of it that they are fully equipped for ministry because they've learned so much about exegesis and history and theology and even some of the practical courses as well. And so really, this is less of a critique of seminaries and more of an encouragement toward especially younger pastors to say, there is much more. Your your education has only begun. And if you start out with that concept, if you start out with that humility, you'll probably be in good shape. But if you mm. have expected your seminary to have taught you everything that you needed to know, you're likely to encounter some significant challenges. You know, one thing I like about this book is that it's focused toward the church, as so much of what you do at the Gospel Coalition is. I think some people think of the Gospel Coalition as a think tank, which in a way it also is. You're concerned about theology with ideas, but you never lose sight of the fact that God's people are gathered into flocks with shepherds. And this in particular has that kind of dimension to it. It's it's a volume with a number of different chapters written by different people. We're not going to talk about all of them, but I'm going to mention a few and see what you want to say about them. Let, let's say a word about your co-editor, Jeff Robinson, who also works with the Gospel Coalition as also a pastor. Mm-hmm. So, Jeff, uh, this really came out of a formative pastoral experience for Jeff while we met together in Birmingham, um, just you know, not far from the Beeson Divinity School campus. And so uh, his first ministry experience after many years at Southern Seminary as a Master Divinity student who came in a little bit older after coming out of a career, a successful career in sports journalism, and then going on to do a Ph.D. in uh, Christian history and historical theology at Southern Seminary, came in very well well-prepared academically, Mm. but found in a particularly difficult church environment the limitations of that academic training as it relates to his own spiritual formation as well as his preparedness for the practical dimensions 
of ministry. And that was a truly agonizing process for Jeff, one that he and I processed together, that we prayed through together, that I helped to counsel him through in some small Mm -hmm. ways. But um, one of the things I love about Jeff, and I noticed with Jeff, is that uh, when you look at his writing, and he was an accomplished writer before I ever met him at the Gospel Coalition, but if you look at his writing before this experience and after this experience, you see a profound difference. Mm. Not a difference in terms of his beliefs or um, his convictions, but in his tone. Mm. There's a certain tone of humility, a Mm. certain tone of of chastened uh, experience Mm. that actually makes him, I think as a writer, one of the most compelling pastoral writers that I'm aware of because younger pastors can look up and say, this guy's learned a lot, but through hardship and through Mm. difficulty. And that is perhaps actually the way of our Savior Mm. uh, to godliness. And so I just, I found his writing including in this chapter, this opening chapter that sets the tone for 15 Things Seminary Couldn't Teach Me, to be very accessible and empathetic and I think ultimately very encouraging uh, to younger pastors in particular. That was really our motivation for the entire book. You know, Luther once said, experientia est omnia, experiences everything. Now, that can be taken in a very bad way and has been in the history of theology where you begin with yourself, your experience, that becomes the criterion, the standard. That's not what Luther meant. Luther meant, I think, if you get really get something deep in your soul, you have to live through it. You have to experience it in that sense. It can't be just theoretical. And so these essays, all these essays in this book have that tone, that tenor to them. They're wrought out of the crucible of experience in that way. Yeah, and that was what we looked for. We looked for people from diverse denominations, diverse ages, diverse ethnic backgrounds. That was one of the advantages of going with a multi-author concept on this book because there's a lot that we can learn from an individual who's gone through something, but to be able to see it systematically through these different people from different regions of the country, and like Mm. I said, denominations, ethnicities, age, you start to see that there's something common in here, um, that you're not, you don't become a pastor the moment you receive this diploma, or even in the moment where you might be ordained, but that this is a, a crucible of, of life that actually God intends. I mean, I think ultimately if we see the example of Jesus, the cruciform example of Jesus, but also consider the example of the Apostle Paul, you know, how his, the hardships that he faced, the physical hardships, the opposition, but especially it was the experience of the pastoral burden, mm. you know, it was his burden for all all of his people. That was what really sunk in. And that is something that stands out in this book, that that you are truly formed for your preaching, Mm -hmm. for your counseling, through the many sorrows and the many burdens that build up as you begin to carry that weight, um, you know, you're guided by the Holy Spirit, ultimately held up by the Holy Spirit. Um, You start to be formed in that way. And that's truly how you become a pastor when you identify with the sufferings Mm -hmm. and joys of your people on this journey together in life. Yeah. Well, let's talk about some of the essays. Uh, two of them deal in particular with families. Now, we know one of the great breakthroughs of the Protestant Reformation is that it's okay to get married. Priestly celibacy is no longer a requirement, although we have to also say God does call and use single people. We think of great leaders like John Stott who right. never got married. But here are two essays, one by our friend Danny Aiken. Danny mm-hmm. is the president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. It's called How to Shepherd My Wife. 
Mm-hmm. Say a little bit about that, and then I want to ask you about another one related to children. So one of the things just about um, I, I know a lot of pastors, and pastors are different from each other, different personalities, different giftings, but it's so significant that when you, when I meet um, pastors' spouses, there's a vast difference there as well. Some spouses are really closely engaged in ministry. They identify intellectually. They identify, maybe they've even been trained um, as well. I think one example that's very near and dear to us at the Gospel Coalition would be Tim and Kathy Keller. Mm-hmm. You know, they met in seminary. Um, but there will be other leaders I work with, pastors who I'll never see their spouse. I'll, I'll never know anything about that, um, you know, about about the wife or anything like that. And that's, I, I think it's it's okay. One of the things we just have to realize is that every spouse is going to be different in terms of mm-hmm. gifting. And that's hard because, especially in traditional environments that have a clear notion of a pastor's wife, that comes with a lot of significant expectations that become a, a major burden and I've seen time and time and time again, it's actually something that's going on with the spouse that becomes a, an opportunity for division and suffering and hardship uh, for the for the pastor. And that's just that's just something that I think people need to be aware of. Um, and it's just a hard thing to convey in a classroom setting, mm-hmm. in a seminary. But it's something to be very, very, very mindful of, I think, and Aiken does a good job of guiding us into what that looks like. Yeah. When I was in seminary at Harvard Divinity School way back in the dark ages, uh, my wife and I, we were fairly newly married then. We'd been married, oh, two or three years. <laughs> we we took a course together called Marriage and Family Counseling. Oh, really? It's okay. the only class I think we ever took together. Mm. And it was wonderful. Not so much about because of what it taught us about marriage and family counseling, but it brought us together in a common enterprise. Mm-hmm. And we're we were able to see one another and our own callings in a special way by being in that setting. That's not going to work for everybody. It shouldn't. It's not a model for everybody. But the, the fact that this is an important part of your life and it needs to be taken seriously. And Danny uh, does a great job, I think, of talking about that with reference to his family and his wife. And then also Matt McCullough. Matt is a pastor in Nashville, isn't Correct. he? Correct. That's right. As at Trinity. Yeah, that's uh, right. Church. Mm-hmm. And uh, tell us about his chapter relating to children. Yeah, so we wanted to write from the perspective of a pastor who actually grew up in a pastor's home. Uh, so Matt's uh, Matt's father is a Southern Baptist pastor in Alabama, a small town, um, South Alabama. And uh, we wanted to know not only how is Matt thinking about this as a parent, but then also how did he experience this? And we wanted to we wanted to give a positive example here as well because we know there are also negative examples. But um, a couple of the takeaways that that we had there, and they're they're fairly simple. And I've I've heard these from other people as well. But um, one of them is. There are certain pastoral situations where it becomes appropriate, especially as your children get a little bit older, where you can take them along in different things. That's something that Matt experienced with his father that he found to be beneficial, where you know you become integrated into the life and the vocation and the lifestyle um, of your parent. And I think that's um, 
you know, it's not going to work in every different situation, as we know, but it also can be an encouragement to members of your congregation. And I think especially older members mm. of your congregation, they, they like that vitality of the family and they love. And it might also even um, change the tone of conversation in some cases <laughs> with, those, yeah. with those members, with the kids around. But uh, but think about certain hospital visitations. Uh, it's probably not a coincidence that Matt and I are working together on a book that he's writing that I've edited called Remember Death uh, that's coming out um, in the fall of, of, of 2018. And it's probably because he's been, you know, proximate. He's been exposed to those situations through mm-hmm. a pastor's yeah. home uh, his entire life. But I, I think the um, uh, that's just a, a natural thing. I think another simple thing is just to speak well of the church. You know, we know how difficult pastoral ministry is, but if your children's experience of church is about you complaining about all the difficult people in your church, especially oh, sister by so name, and so, exactly, oh brother so and so, just we should yep. not be surprised when our children grow up mm. and they see the church as a den of vipers that they want to stay away from. And um, oh, so, that's those such are a good point. Simple so things we you're can not do. intentionally, anyway, uh, conveying your resentments to them, but they pick it up. In the small words and the tones you use, uh, it's a hard call to make because it's it's difficult to hide that when you're at home. You have to hide it all the time when you're at church. It relates to the spouse issue as well because some spouses want to be involved or want at least know about things. They want to be able to pray about things. Their spouses can't really – they don't want that. They can't mm. handle that. They're not interested in that. And that's just something you have to – you have to feel out, um, but I would say that's that's something that I continue to have to work through, even in my own marriage, of of thinking about what do I share and what do I not share, and um, and there's no, th- th- like I said, there's this is why we're talking about 15 things seminary couldn't teach me because there's no rule book yeah. for how this handles. I don't even know how you would do this in a textbook. Now here's another here's another situation you deal with. Uh, this is in a chapter by Matt, another Matt, Matt Caps, yes. who's a pastor in Apex, North Carolina, Fairview Baptist Church. And he talks about uh, the difficulty that can arise when you are the associate pastor, your own staff in a church. And you have some pretty deep or serious disagreements with the lead pastor. How do you handle that? Yeah, so one thing that your former student and our friend Mark Dever has said is that the position of associate pastor is perhaps the most difficult in a congregation because you don't have the authority to call the shots. You are executing on plans made by the elders, by the lead pastor, but um, or other leaders of the church. But you you might have oversight of programs and some significant latitude there. But ultimately, you're uh, accountable to other people for that vision. And so, what one of the things that Matt Caps talks about in there is that sometimes the disagreement simply will become so significant that you have to leave. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't in good conscience, and it's it's not necessarily because only because you're objecting to something and you're resigning in protest. It's because you can't in good conscience do what they're asking you mm. to do. And mm. that's just something you, you have to be very careful about and you don't want to be deceptive about. But another thing that I think is especially helpful for maybe a lot of people listening to this podcast, younger ministers who are often going to start out in associate positions, 
is to go right back to Jesus's basic teaching to love their senior pastor mm. the way they would want to be loved in that same situation because many of them will grow up, um, will become lead pastors, senior pastors someday, and they will have the same dynamic when they're leading. So how would you want to affirm and encourage um, and, and love a, a superior in that case um, you know, or how would you want to be loved by somebody who worked for you when you're going to be in that position someday? Um, I think a lot of us can relate to that in job experiences all over mm-hmm. the place, no matter where we are. Um, but it's it's a helpful word, even as I process it personally, because I think about even as a young church member, some of the things that I said to pastors and critiques I made to pastors make me cringe. Um, you know, I, I'm not as smart at age 37 as I was at age 23 somehow. I don't know oh, how there that you works. <laughs> well, let me ask you about the chapter by Juan Sanchez. He is one of your leaders in the he gospel is one coalition. of our council members. That's right. And he is the pastor at High Point Baptist Church in Austin, Texas. He's written an interesting chapter on leading. How do you lead your leaders? Yeah. Because that's another kind of problem, isn't it? When you move into a congregation, you've got people who are themselves already in their work and their community. Uh, even in the church, the real leaders. How do you offer leadership in that situation? Well, and I have to be have to be clear on this point. A lot of pastors are not necessarily good leaders. Mm. Um, that's a diff, that's a specific kind of gifting. That's not. Um, the exact same thing as being able to teach mm. um, or being able to study. And that's one of the major problems is that you've been called because you might be a gifted orator, a good sermon writer, um, even a good paper research paper writer or something like that. But then you get dropped into a church situation. And especially let, let's let's think about two different scenarios here. So let's think about somebody who comes in as a late 20s or early 20-something or or young 30-something pastor, if you're a solo pastor at that age, one, you're either a prodigy, which is not going to be most of us, or you're in a difficult church situation Mm. (laughs) because those churches are not normally hiring somebody that young as a solo pastor. That means it's going to require that much more of you in terms of leadership and you're quickly going to learn just how difficult that is. I think somebody who's written well on this topic is Mark Devine mm. here at Beeson Divinity School of these revitalization situations. And make no mistake, a lot of what he's learned is just the necessity of strong leadership um, giftings to be able to navigate churches in those situations. But another example would be a lot of larger churches will look for somebody about age 40 or so to lead. But if you come into an established church and maybe you're 40 years old as a lead pastor or a senior pastor, that means your elders or other leaders in the church are probably going to be older Mm. than you. And probably the previous pastor was significantly older than you and perhaps retired. That's one of those moments where you have to, you know, follow the exhortation from Paul to Timothy to not let others, you know, despise you because of your, your youth, but be able to lead through example, lead through your commitment to scriptures, lead through your your humility. There are ways to lead in a... Uh, congregations are interesting. You, you very rarely can lead through direct authority. Mm. Rarely are you going to be able to just say, this is how it's going to be. So much of your leadership capital is relational. Mm. And that requires... I mean, it is a special kind of gifting, but also discipline to learn how to lead people from almost like behind through persuasion rather than up front through dictation. Yeah. Well, you know, this is a, t- a hot topic in in pastoral studies because the idea that the pastor is the leader who should exercise authority 
it's my way or the highway, that that's kind of ingrained in a way in a certain kind of church culture. And yet it does run in a way, it seems, counter not only to the example of Jesus, but to the uh, advice we have from the apostles in the New Testament. And the question, i come back to your title, 15 Things Seminary Couldn't Teach Me. Now, we have courses on leadership. Sure. Uh, every seminary does. It's mm-hmm. almost a requirement today. But very often the models of leadership that we're drawing from are not particularly the apostolic, biblical, Jesus kind of models. Uh, how can we do a better job with what you're talking about? Well, I think another factor that complicates things, and it's actually something I've just been pondering in recent days, is that um, the younger generations, we're not even talking about millennials here, but even the generation coming after millennials is very skeptical of authority and a, very skeptical of, of religious authority. Um, and that also includes biblical authority. And so these kind of direct, even just I'm the person in charge and this is how it's going to be because the Bible says so are just these immediate turnoffs for them. And so part of that is getting back to the apostolic, to the to Christ's model uh, that, that he gave us, because there's all kinds of language here that does not fit very well into the reigning corporate paradigm mm-hmm. for churches. Things like the first shall be last, and the blessed are you when you are persecuted, and I mean, the blessed are the poor in spirit and things like that. And so I do think we have a wonderful example. You can't think of better leaders than Jesus and Paul. Um, and yet they they look very different mm-hmm. <laughs> from, from a lot of what we see today. I think about Paul being somebody who is relatively meek. Mm-hmm. In person, you know, not good looking, letters, apparently not, not good looking. Well, then perhaps if if Isaiah fifty two fifty three, if we understand that correctly, Jesus perhaps was himself not very good looking mm-hmm. um, uh, either. So yeah, we're looking for that strong, tall, charismatic figure. But I wonder how many more high profile examples of moral failure and abuse we need mm-hmm. with that model before we realize that maybe the Bible did have something to say about Hmm. leadership that we should be paying attention to. Great. Let let me ask you about two other chapters. Uh, These, in a way, are kind of, um, you might say, uh, opposing themes. Uh, One is when to accept a call to leave my church. Uh, That's by our friend Harry Reeder, who's the pastor at the Briarwood Presbyterian Church here in Birmingham. The other, the joy I can know over a long <laughs> tenure by another friend of mine, Phil Newton, who's a pastor in Memphis, Memphis and I preached yeah. for him. It seems like fifty years ago. He's been there. <laughs> he's been there a long time. So has. talk about those two realities and yeah. how you discern, I guess, uh, God's um, nudging you in one way or another on these matters. How can you get joy if you're there for a long, long time, or when do you know it's time to let go and to leave? Let me start with the beginning and then and then end with the end. Uh, so in the beginning, I don't think it's wise usually for pastors, if you're taking a, a lead pastor or solo pastor position, I don't think it's wise for you to take that position unless you can envision yourself being there for a while. Mm. Um, now, I won't go quite so far as to say your entire life, uh, though that might be wise. But the point is, usually... 
you're off to a bad start if you're expecting to leave mm. that church. Now, I'm not talking about an interim type situation no. or something like that. And I understand things are going to come in there. But this notion that has been especially prevalent, I think, in, in Southern Baptist churches, uh, Wendell Berry writes a lot about this from his perspective in Kentucky um, within striking distance of Louisville in the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary over the years. But generally speaking, if a pastor comes in expecting I'm going to kind of pay my dues at this place for a couple years, unless it's a, a student or something like that, you know, um, that's not often going to end well. The people are going to view you a certain way. You're going to view them a certain way. People don't like to be your ticket to be mm. punched to a higher and bigger things. Mm. And unfortunately, that is, especially in a denominational context like the SBC, that's often how mm. younger pastors do view these you do view these things. So that's one thing to keep in mind. But then another thing to keep in mind is that, um, you know, the church doesn't need you. Um, that, you know, on the, on the other side of things, um, if you get to a point in ministry where you can't imagine the church being okay without you, then you, you probably failed mm. as a leader mm. at some place or another. Um, you haven't adequately developed the plurality of leaders, um, other pastors, elders, you perhaps have not modeled a, a, an effective way of handling the truth of, of God's word for yourself, but maybe you have been putting on a performance, mm -hmm. um, demonstrating your own wisdom and your own insight and things like that, rather than the wisdom and insight of the inspired, inerrant word of God. Um, and so that's that's what you need to avoid. And you can set that tone early on in ministry. But again, if you get to the end and you start to think, I can't imagine these people surviving around here without me, then maybe it is a sign that you should be moving on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so um, you know this in the life of the church as these things come and go and you, you stay or you leave. Uh, and in the midst of that, there's conflict, all kinds of conflict. Uh, one of your chapters is How to Handle Conflict by Jay Thomas. Mm -hmm. There's not a pastor I suggest listening to this podcast who hasn't faced that at some level in some way at some time. Mm -hmm. So how do you handle conflict? Yeah, I mean, part of it's just not to be surprised by mm -hmm. it. Um, conflict is going to follow you wherever you pastor people. <laughs> yeah. And that's obviously everywhere. And conflict's going to follow you um, because you likewise are a sinner. Um, so the real question is not whether you you face conflict. Um, one thing is that there might be more conflict early on in your ministry, but if there is escalating conflict, you have to learn the difference of discernment between is this escalating conflict because I'm guiding people into the truth of God's word in newer and deeper ways and they're resistant to it? Or is this because I've created a culture of ungodliness that is coming around and really kind of uh, biting and devouring me. Um, I don't know exactly how you discern that, but I guess my best example there is to continue to to match our ministry against that of Jesus. Um, mm. But the, the the real question there is: Do you do you find yourself being personally destroyed by this conflict, or do you find yourself running to the refuge of Christ in that conflict and ultimately? Can you be okay if the worst case scenario happens, if you get fired there and your family is out? Because a pastor 
who can be okay with that because he knows that Christ will provide for him. He, mm. you know, he clothes the lilies of the field and feeds the birds of the air, so he will take care of you and your family. A pastor who can be assured of that and know that is a pastor who can accomplish pretty amazing things, mm. even with conflict. But a pastor who feels like he has to hold on to this because he doesn't know how his family is going to be okay otherwise is a pastor who, one, is going to be very likely to cover up um, cover up sin in, in the pastor's own life. Mm-hmm. You know, there's going to be probably some concealed sin that's mm-hmm. involved there. And then also you're going to try to avoid conflict by placating people. Mm. And there are certain people in your church that you cannot afford to placate. Mm. You know, that would be ungodliness and an abdication of your responsibility as a shepherd of God's flock to placate certain people in their evil Mm. in your church. That requires a lot of discernment and humility to know where that is. Um, But that's those are just some of the things that I've observed personally and also just working with a lot of pastors over the years. Pastor Jay Thomas wrote that chapter on conflict. Mm-hmm. He's the pastor of Chapel Hill Bible Church in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Good friend of mine from Wheaton. We were at college church together. Yeah. Now, uh, we're almost out of time, but you wrote a chapter yourself. You not only are the co-editor, you're also the contributor. Mm-hmm. And the chapter you wrote is What to Do When No Church Hires Me. <laughs> I bet a number of Beeson graduates and other people from other seminaries have asked that question. (laughs) I would hope not Beeson Divinity School. I was thinking maybe that's why I didn't get hired because I didn't go to Beeson Divinity School and I should have listened. Oh, goodness. That was certainly a very difficult and, and formative thing for me. But the real big takeaway, and the Lord was very kind to me. In this, he revealed to me that my calling, my, my gifting is a gifting regardless of whether you get a paycheck for it. If you are called to take care of God's people, to teach mm-hmm. God's people, to set an example for God's people, then you will do that. Mm-hmm. You, you will do that no matter if, if somebody pays you, pays you to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I think, is a pretty good indication of, of calling. We're, we're, we're better off observing the work of God in someone's life and then affirming that as a call to ministry rather than what we normally do, which is a, I mean, I really think, Dr. George, this is a is a big problem when it comes to younger pastors and calling. I think a lot of them imagine, well, um, the spiritual things of God are really important, and I like to talk, and people seem to respond to me when I talk, therefore I should be a pastor. Mm. Well, you can see how that kind of self-centered um, subjective approach to calling gets us into a lot of trouble because people are not going to always be impressed with us and there's going to be conflict and hardship and suffering like we're talking about. But I wonder if we went back to the biblical notion of calling as a calling to lay down our lives for God's people, just like Christ himself laid down his life for the church. What if we got back to that notion of, of the, the privilege of calling to lay down our lives for God's people and to and to bear these burdens um, of one another that the Apostle Paul talks about. What if we got back to that notion of calling? Then I think we would better prepare people for ministry and including during some of the suffering and hardship of when your dream of how things are supposed to go is not aligned with God's vision for your life, which is what I found when I graduated seminary and reflect on 
um, at the end of this book. So um, I'm very grateful for the Lord leading me through there and also grateful that he didn't inflict me um, on some poor congregation back then. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the preface to this book, the foreword, was written by my friend Dr. Al Mohler, who is also one of my former students. I'm old enough to (laughs) say that. But um, he makes a good recommendation. I want to read just a paragraph from that foreword about the Christian ministry. He says, The essays in this book, seasoned with thoughtfulness, seated with experience, are helpful in clarifying the centrality of the local church and the education of the pastor. Some of them will make you smile. Others may make you wince. Every essay will make you think. It's true. And so I want to commend this book, 15 Things Seminary Couldn't Teach Me, edited by Colin Hansen and Jeff Robinson and published by our friends at Crossway. It's a great read. It's not a long book, but it's a book that will be a blessing to you. I commend it to all those who are pastors or anybody who knows a pastor. I think you'll find it very helpful. Thank you, Colin, for this conversation. Thank you, Dr. George. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.